Hello and welcome to this latest edition from the public law team in Herbert Smith Freehills' coronavirus series. My name is James Wood and I'm a senior associate in our London team. Today I'll be getting some insights from our public law partners, Andrew Lidbetter and Nusrat Zahr, on the increasing calls for a public inquiry in relation to this crisis. Both Andrew and Nusrat, together with me and other members of our team, have a wealth of experience in this area, having acted for significant organisations in a number of major inquiries over the years as well as in select committee inquiries. We're going to discuss the potential shape an inquiry could take, what a public inquiry is, some alternatives to a public inquiry, and also share some key points about how inquiries operate. Andrew, beginning with the big question, we've all been following the media coverage relating to a potential inquiry, including the increasing pressure on the government to commit to one. Do you think it will happen? I think it's very likely that an inquiry of some shape and form will have to happen at some point, not least considering the argument that human rights concerns might require an inquiry as well as public demand. The human rights argument is that where there have been deaths or serious threats to life in the way that there have with COVID-19, there should be an inquiry. Also, the government will have in mind that a failure to conduct an inquiry could be challenged in the court through judicial review, which could then, in practice, force an inquiry to be held. The interesting question is what it could look like and when it should go ahead. That's likely to depend in large part on the prevailing political landscape and how matters develop over the coming months. But I predict that if an inquiry takes place, it will be a public inquiry, probably a statutory inquiry, established under the inquiry's legislation. As regards timing, a public inquiry would operate as a form of learning lessons piece, where the ultimate outcome is that the inquiry makes findings about past conduct, and on the basis of that evidence, makes recommendations for best practice going forwards. With concerns around further waves, there's also a vital need to learn lessons quickly in a timely way. This might point towards a split or staggered inquiry prioritising particular issues. So we could find that an inquiry is structured like the ongoing inquiry into institutional child sex abuse, where the inquiry has an overarching purpose, but under that umbrella conducts a number of individual investigations. In that way, organisations and individuals would be able to contribute to those parts of the inquiry most pertinent to their involvement or experience and without becoming involved in other aspects of the inquiry's work. Thanks Andrew. Nusra, our, our team's experience with inquiries is that particularly in the commercial sphere they can involve at least to some degree a wider range of entities than at first glance would be expected. Who do you think could be brought into an inquiry here? Well, that would depend on the formal terms of reference given to the inquiry, but the consequences of the pandemic have struck so deeply into all corners of life and society that in order to be credible, they will need some width. Much of the focus of an inquiry is likely to be on the government, covering areas such as the government's approach to lockdown and other big policy decisions, as well as questions such as the preparedness of the NHS and learnings from operation sickness. But I would also expect it to involve individuals and organisations from across the country and from different sectors, including commercial entities. 
as you know, there have been calls, particularly from doctors' associations, for an inquiry to look into the supply of PPE. This would need evidence not only in relation to policy making and the frontline experience, but also from other organisations, such as those involved in the manufacture and supply of PPE, and also private organisations which are in effect customers of PPE supply, such as care homes. With key supply chains, an inquiry might look at whether more could or should have been done to ensure security of supply of food, medicine and other essential goods. Evidence would then be needed from key commercial organisations involved in those supply chains, such as supermarkets and pharmaceutical companies. Pharmaceutical companies could be called on to give evidence in relation to the development of a vaccine and treatments. Providers of services in key settings where relatively high numbers of deaths have occurred could also be required to give evidence. And this could range from hospitals and care homes to other settings such as transport. There are also critical questions around why the pandemic appears to have affected certain groups of people worse than others. And the charitable sector likely also has an important role to play. I expect that an inquiry could also look into the economic aspects of the crisis. Yes, and in doing so, it might examine the steps which were taken to assist consumers, businesses and employees. So this could bring in the banks, for example, as well as insurance companies and telecoms, media and technology companies, and possibly also energy companies. Evidence from businesses themselves would be needed, for example, about the real impact of the restrictions on the ground and logistics. So taking construction as an example, this was an industry that wasn't officially shut down, but in practice, many aspects of it were affected, from supply chain issues to the practicalities of working within the government's distancing guidance. There could well also be inquiries into the operation of the furlough scheme and more widely the implementation of the government's guidelines through employers. Thanks, Nezra. Andrew, if there is a public statutory inquiry, as you anticipate, what would this mean for the entities and particularly the commercial organisations that end up becoming involved? Inquiries are inquisitorial rather than the adversarial system we typically think of with court processes. Recommendations made by an inquiry aren't binding, and inquiries don't themselves rule on civil or criminal liability. Therefore, the key immediate risk is reputational. An inquiry can be very damaging to the reputation of organisations and individuals. In particular, if organisations are seen to be covering things up or otherwise being reluctant witnesses, that can play out badly in front of an inquiry panel and general public, given that any inquiry would be likely to be live streamed for the most part. The inquiry's ultimate report or reports will receive a huge amount of publicity and could criticise the conduct of certain organisations or even particular individuals within them. There are steps which can be taken to try to limit such criticisms including resorting to the courts if necessary, but almost invariably the better course is to engage collaboratively with the inquiry as it goes on and try to ensure that the organisation is assisting and being seen to assist the inquiry with its work. The organisation should also explain its position on the issues very carefully. The other main risk 
is of further action emerging from the proceedings at the inquiry. As I've highlighted, inquiries don't make any findings on civil or criminal liability. However, that doesn't mean that civil or criminal liability can't flow from facts that the inquiry might establish. As we've seen in other inquiries, a number of aspects will arise which involve strategic and legal considerations. These range from levels of participation to dealing with evidence and also navigating procedure. On that point, Andrew, what key things would it be helpful for commercial organisations to be aware of at this stage? First and foremost, it's important to have in mind that an inquiry could be constituted and underway very quickly. Inquiries have a high degree of latitude with setting their own procedure. They have to act fairly in public law terms, but this can still mean tight timescales and a process that's less predictable than litigation. Quick decisions might need to be made about whether to seek to participate formally as a core participant, or on the other hand, to try to keep a lower profile. There are pros and cons of each approach depending on individual circumstances. In the end, it's up to the inquiry how to proceed, but it's important where possible to have a strategy in place, not least since the first communications will set the tone for subsequent dealings. Statutory inquiries have powers to compel organisations and individuals to give evidence and hand over documents, whether or not they're formally involved as core participants. Those powers are similar to the powers which a court has in ordinary litigation, albeit that it will be for the inquiry to decide what is relevant, subject only to the requests for material being within their terms of reference. Companies or individuals can only resist requests by an inquiry for disclosure of documents or information on very limited grounds. And linked to that, it's worth bearing in mind that a failure to comply with inquiry requests or any interference with evidence or concealing documents can be a criminal offence. Inquiry decisions are public law decisions which can be challenged by way of judicial review. An inquiry in particular has to act rationally and in a procedurally fair way. There are, however, only very short time limits for such challenges and also litigation would very much be a last resort. Thanks Andrew. Nusra, are there any steps that commercial organisations should be thinking about taking now? It's obviously premature to commit resources to any particular steps but insofar as organisations can have in place a system for easily identifying their COVID-19 related information this could save time and costs later down the line. Also, where that information is particularly sensitive and relates to matters such as compliance with the law or government guidelines, it would be advisable to seek legal advice. Legal advice will be the subject of legal professional privilege, and privilege where applicable can always be waived if appropriate at a later time, but it can't be created where it didn't exist in the first place. I would say too, to ensure so far as possible encouraging professionalism particularly in internal communications. With many people now working remotely and increasing their use of email and chat functions, there is now more scope for the creation and subsequent requirement to disclose potentially embarrassing or damaging material. 
Once an inquiry is underway, then building a constructive working relationship with the inquiry team at an early stage will be important. This can help to limit what can be very broad requests to the truly key information. The hope is that by doing so, the organisation can avoid large-scale exercises, which can be costly and would involve handing over potentially sensitive information, which in practice is of peripheral or no real relevance to the inquiry's work. Finally, Andrew, what about alternatives to a public inquiry? I suppose the most likely alternative or indeed addition to a public inquiry is the involvement of parliamentary select committees. We're already seeing select committees asking questions and hearing oral evidence, and I expect that to continue over the coming months. Many of the same considerations apply to select committee hearings as to public inquiries. For example, there are powers to compel the provision of evidence if people don't cooperate voluntarily. One key difference is that select committee hearings are led by parliamentarians, which means that questions and reports can have more of a political flavour. On the other hand, a statutory inquiry will have an independent chair and panel, which means the intention is that the inquiry's work is intended to be independent. There's also scope for coroner inquests to play a role in findings on whether and how COVID-19 deaths could have been avoided, but the coroner's powers are limited by statute and not designed to cover the breadth of issues that could call for scrutiny here. Thanks, Andrew. So that brings us to the end of our time for today's podcast. Thank you all for listening and we hope it's been helpful. For more information, do feel free to be in touch and also please do keep an eye on our Public Law Notes blog and the firm's wider COVID-19 material. This was James Wood talking with Andrew Lidbetter and Nusrat Zahr, who lead Herbert Smith Freehills' public law practice in London.